turn to what may be a familiar passage of scripture to no doubt most of you in the church. I find it not only appropriate for times like these, but it's just appropriate. And let me say this. I pray that all of our messages will impact you in some type of way that will make a lasting and eternal impact. But every now and then there are those messages that just resonate so deep in the soul. And my thoughts are by midweek, they've got to get this. If you don't get this, if you don't get this today, you've missed out on life. That's just how important this is. Tap your neighbor and say, make sure you get this. Second Corinthians 12, 7. And least I should be exalted, the Apostle Paul says, above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. The, the literal translation said, a thorn in the flesh was gifted to me. <laughs> a messenger of Satan. For those of you who like to eat like me, that's not buffet, but to buffet me, <laughs> to bruise me, lest I be exalted above measure. Look at verse 8. Concerning these, this thing, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And the Lord said to me, son, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect. It is perfected. It is ultimately realized in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I come to this conclusion. Most gladly, everybody can't say that. Therefore, in light of this, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest on me. Therefore, I take, everybody can't say this, pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. The conclusion is this, for when I am weak, you don't always have to give your strong testimony, church. You don't have to make everybody think when you walk on the church ground and through the door that you super Christian, you got it all together. For the reality is, you got a weak testimony too. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You may be seated. If I could tag this text today with a title that hopefully you will remember from now on, I'd like to take the opportunity to do that. I would like to talk about receiving victory from a villain. Victory from a villain. Can you say that with me? Victory. Vict uh, villains are nothing new to us. <laughs> ever since we were children, we have witnessed villains. If you've ever been a James Bond fan, you or Austin Powers fan, you, you remember Dr. Evil. If you've been a James Bond fan, you remember Mr. Goldfinger. 
If you will go back to the Batman days, you remember the Joker, the Riddler. And some of y'all still remember because you see him around you, old Two-Face. <clears throat> My kids grew up with Lex Luthor and Skeletor, Shredder from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then re recently the world was exposed through the movie Black Panther to Eric Killmonger, the villain. But there is a villain of all villains that all of the other villains, fictional or real, they pattern themselves after. They come out of the mold. A villain that has existed before time in his name Satan, the villain of villains. As I think about this, as they would say in a lot of the movies and cartoons when I was growing up, he's not just an evil villain, but this evil villain. Church, I have to ask myself the question. Why hasn't God wiped this villain out? Why hasn't God destroyed and done away with Satan? If God is sovereign and has absolute control, then why does he allow Satan to exist and to linger on? You may not think about it now, but when you have those bad days, you ask the question, why? The first question before we try to make an attempt to answer uh, that question, a question within the question is this. Does God even have the power and authority to do away with Satan? Does he have power and authority to destroy Satan? Because I don't want to make the assumption, not only in light of the culture we live in, but the church environment that we live in today and the mentality and what we hear preached and sung and I, I, we... We have so lighthearted the powers of God, the authority. We've got more authority than God. That I don't want to assume that we believe, number one, in the sovereignty of God and his ability to demolish and to annihilate Satan. But I would say, yes, God does have power over Satan, this evil villain. And one day the word of God says he will not only punish, but he will destroy him. Look at a, just a few references of God's power over Satan. John wrote in his first letter, 1 John 4 and 4, and said it this way. He says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he, somebody say he, he, God, Christ, who is in you is greater than, somebody say greater than, he who is in the world. Who is the he in the world? That's Satan. He is greater than, even in this weakness, he is still greater than Satan on the outside. Satan destruction is imminent under the power and the hand of God. Revelation 20, Paul, uh, John rather gives us a glimpse of this from the Isle of Patmos. 
And he said it this way, and fire came down from God, from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil, that Satan who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. His destruction is imminent. It's guaranteed. It's already set in place. The time, the place, and it is God Almighty who will destroy him. Even a thousand demons can't even uh, challenge the finger of God. When Jesus approached a, a man who was demon-possessed, and he asked him what was his name, he said legion, which is typically representative of a thousand. And they feared God. And he cast them out even when they begged to differ. So therefore, the question is not, church, does God have power over Satan? But therefore, the question remains, why hasn't God already destroyed Satan? God could have destroyed Satan when he cast Lucifer out of the heavens. Lucifer, i.e. Satan, he could have done away with him right then and there. He could have destroyed Satan in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve were tempted or immediately after, after he sentenced him. God could have destroyed uh, Satan when he wiped out this world in the day of Noah with water. God could have destroyed Satan when he sent the plagues to Egypt to set his people free, annihilate him, do away with them so this will never happen again. God could have destroyed Satan in the wilderness when Jesus was there tempted for 40 days and 40 nights and his hunger and his thirst. But he didn't. He could have just annihilated him, done totally away with him, non-existent at Calvary's cross. But he didn't. And the reality is, I think you can agree with me, I think we'd all do much better without Satan. The Bible says, lead me not into temptation. You do away with Satan. I ain't got nobody to lead me into temptation. I'm just giving my testimony. If you take the tempter out, then you do away with the temptation. The best way of get, getting rid of our feelings of guilt and shame and inadequacies and condemnation is to get rid of the accuser of the brother who is accusing us falsely every day. So then why does God continue to allow Satan to exist in the world? Today we even got a bunch of Christians running around talking about I bind Satan. I cast him to the pits of hell. I got news for you. He ain't going nowhere yet. I don't care how much we are bothered by this villain I don't care how much he disrupts our life and our peace and our joy and our tranquility, but he ain't gone nowhere yet. And everybody who thinks he still got that power, you got to ask yourself this question. If you keep binding him, how's he keep snipping the ropes loose and getting back in your stuff again? So why does God allow Satan to stay in this world among us. I'm going to start off by giving you a partial answer. Matter of fact, all of 
my three answers today are partial because the reality is none of us, and certainly I don't know the mind of God. But we do know what the scriptures tell us clearly and his reason why he allows Satan to exist. You got to understand that Satan is on God's leash. God is on one end and he's given Satan this long leash. Somebody say it's a long leash. But God <clears throat> controls that leash, leash. God is the one who takes Satan out in, in the mornings and walk him like a dog. So if God has Satan on a leash, then therefore Satan still exists for the purposes of God. Somebody say for the purposes of God. That's number one. You need to know, number one, that he still exists for the purposes of God. Or we can sum it up, and, and which would still be plural, but deeper, for the purpose of God. You need to write this down. And don't forget this. Because if you're not going through now, you will on tomorrow. God uses, excuse me, God uses Satan to destroy Satan. God uses Satan to destroy Satan. Don't miss this. This is the premise of the whole sermon. It's been boiling up inside of me for the last week and a half. This is going to bless you. This is not just something preacher would say in a pulpit and make people want to tweet it. God uses Satan to defeat Satan. Can we walk through the scriptures? For instance, and I'm going to give you a few for instances. John 13 and 2. Jesus sitting with his disciples and he's about to be betrayed. Stay with me, church. And the text says, and supper being ended, the devil, Satan. Y'all with me? Having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. It was Satan that put in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. It was Satan who influenced Judas to dime Jesus out. We could say if it wasn't for Judas, let's start here, then Christ would not have been arrested, judged in a mock trial, and fastened to a cross. But you can't give the credit to Judas because Satan put it in his heart. So God, some of y'all catching this already, you Satan, Christ went to the cross to defeat Satan. God used Satan to defeat Satan. Just let it, let it, just have a Selah moment. 
Paul said it this way to the Colossians, the, the results of that. Colossians 2.14, Christ having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. The laws of God that were against us. Our sinful and disgraceful record that was against us. The standard that of God that we could not meet that would now, because of our sins, is against us. Christ wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed... Listen to this. Having disarmed, it's not just a what that he disarmed, but it's a who that he disarmed. Having disarmed principalities and powers. Behind every power, there's an authority. Behind that authority, there is a person. We're engaged in spiritual warfare, Paul says. Listen, in the heavenly places with principalities, and powers. Y'all with me? So he has disarmed Satan of his authority and his power. And not only that, he made a public, public spectacle of them and of him triumphing over it. Over him. Y'all get that? If it wasn't for Satan putting it in the heart of Judas to betray Christ, that sent Christ, if you will, to the cross where he not only died for our sins but removed our sin and condemnation that was against us but he also defeated Satan in the process. God used Satan. He ain't as smart as y'all think he is. Somebody said the devil is in the details. He really is not in the details. He just looks at the bigger picture. The writer of Hebrews said it this way in Hebrews 2.14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, we're all of flesh and blood. He himself, Christ likewise, shared in the same. He took upon God Almighty in his incarnation flesh and blood. Listen, that through death, stay with me, through death, he might destroy him who had, past tense, the power of death. And in case you don't know who the him is, he says that is the devil. So not only did he use Satan to destroy Satan, the devil to destroy the devil But God used death to destroy death. So what you afraid of? He used death to destroy. In other words, if he had not died and used death as a resource, then death would still have power and control over us. We need to know that because our greatest fear in life is death. The devil likes to dangle death over our head. But if you know that the devil has been destroyed by the devil and death has been destroyed by death, ultimately by God, 
you ain't got nothing to worry about. And so therefore, death not only is a resource at Calvary, and when he came out of the grave, it became a tool. It was a resource at Calvary that God used through Christ. But when he was resurrected from the grave, it became a tool that he used as a door of transition to get us from this corrupt, mean, evil world under the hands of a vicious villain into glory. So what are you afraid of? Because God is absolutely sovereign and he controls Satan. I'm going to repeat it again for his own purposes. John 10 and 18 brings that home even more. Jesus said it this way. Don't fool yourself. He says to his accusers, no one takes my life from me. What do you think this is? He's going gangster on them. You can't take my life from me. I lay it down. And I lay it down on my own accord for my own reasons whenever I get ready. Later he said, I don't only lay it down, but I, shoot, I'll pick it back up again. That's something the dead folk can't do. You can say, I'll lay it down, but you certainly can't say it that you're going to pick it back up again and it becomes a reality. Now, unless you're God. Not unless you have absolute power and authority over death. He used death to destroy death. But listen to this, Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. When Peter was speaking to the Jews, bringing about convictions of their sins and their denial of Christ as the Messiah. This is what he said. Him, Christ, being delivered. Somebody say delivered. If somebody's delivered or something is delivered, someone has possession and control over it, and they choose to hand it over to you. Him being delivered. But it is when delivered, thrown at, it was a thought, well thought through process. By the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. God had a determined purpose of why he would deliver his son over into the hands of Jew, these Jews. You have taken, here's your part, by lawless hands. You have taken with your lawless hands, because they set him up to be crucified, have crucified and put to death. Did y'all get that? We ain't afraid of that word. That seemed like that's the reason why it's always at the end of this sentence, because it's the one that seems like it's most tragic. It has the greatest power over us. Brings about the greatest fear. Whom God raised up. Listen to this. Having loosed the pains of death. Because it was not possible that he should be held by death. You can't have someone who is the essence of life being controlled by death. And not only that, this is not only after resurrection, post-resurrection, post-crucifixion, but he says, since in the tense, he has used death to defeat death, Satan to defeat Satan, then therefore there's no death that can control him. There's no possibility that death can handle him. 
let alone be held by him. You know, when we really think about it, we give way too much credit to the devil. Way too much focus and energy to the negative things and people and circumstances around us. Amen. And yet in Genesis 50 and verse 20, you know the infamous words of Joseph. But as for you, he says to his brothers, you meant evil against me. Hold on to this now. Evil. You're villainous. But God. I hate to say it like this, but I won't want to say it because whenever you see it in scripture next time, I want to resonate with you. I like big butts. When they're in the scripture and they pertain to God. Did y'all catch that? Yeah. So I don't care what your situation look like, but there's always a but God. You were dead in sins and trespasses, but God has made you alive in Christ. Y'all guess that right there? Just, just drop a T on the end and understand that it was going this way, but in light of Christ, it is totally turned around. You like big butts too, I can tell. You've taken by lawless hands, crucified, you put to death whom God raised up. Uh, first, excuse me, verse uh, Genesis fifty twenty. But as for you, but as for you, you meant it. Here's the second book coming up. Meant it evil against me, but contrasting statement, God meant it for good. Here's why. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Tap your neighbor and say, it ain't always just about you. The reason why God will use evil, a villain, to bring victory in your life, Joseph said, is so that you could be saved. The same ones that plotted against me, the same ones that threw me in the pit, sold me out into slavery, wanted to kill me if it wasn't for the mercy of God. God saved me for you. Now walk in there tomorrow and your job and announce that in the boardroom. Put your hand on your hater's shoulder when you say it. Don't press down too hard. said it before but we give way too much credit not only to the devil but then we're dismissive of the real reason why we have trials and challenges and tribulations in our lives John chapter 9 is this wonderful and insightful story of Jesus and his disciples and they see a mother and a father and they see them leading their son who is blind by the hand. And the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned that this boy would be born, or actually man would be born blind? That's the question. Who sinned? You ever feel like that? Ah, Lord, 
car broken down on the side of the road again. I'm going to lose my job because I'm going to be late again. And you start thinking, what did I do wrong? God is punishing me for something. Now, he might be tearing that tail up about something, but he's not punishing you. He's not condemning you. But he does chasten those whom he loves. But it is not condemnation. In other words, it is not anything that we have done ourselves that got us in this place with this pain. So they said, who, who sinned? Somebody had to sin because anytime a child is born blind, which the question, when you really think about it, I thought about it yesterday, it didn't really make much sense. Who sinned that this man will be born blind? Y- y'all going to catch that word right there in the middle. Was it him or his parent? If the fella was born blind, then it couldn't have been his sins. <laughs> now, I say this because sometimes we look at other people. And we look at what they're going through. And we like, we're like Job's three friends. See, so the reason why they're going is because they got evil in their heart. I kept telling him, see, this is what God is going to do. So let me ask you, what has he done with the evil in your heart? See, the reason why they got this cancer and the reason why the tongue falling out their mouth now and drying up and the reason why, you know, all the stuff that we say, that's why, that's why he's losing his job. That's why he ain't got no money. That's the reason why things falling apart in his family is because of this. So what is your story? Because if God was doing something because of somebody's something, then all of us ought to have something as a result of our something that God would destroy us for. And Jesus stepped up and said, it's not that this man's sin or his parents' sin is what causes blindness. Listen to this carefully. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. That the works of God might be displayed in him. This is what Jesus was saying. I'm going to take his blindness to defeat his blindness that his sight might be restored. There's something that you're going through. And this weight is so heavy on you. And you keep asking, why God? Well, I got news for you. 99% of our whys will never be answered on this side. Not in detail. Most of them will never never even have a clue. But we have enough principles to understand that whatever that we're going through, God is putting us on display. That the world might see us go through it by his grace and that he might be glorified. We got to consider the, the narrative of Job, do I have time? We got to consider the narrative of Job before we even, you say, you you read a text and didn't even get to that text because I'm building on the text. Leading to the text. You got to consider the narrative of Job. If we're really going to understand how God uses, if you will, this villain to cause us to be victorious, go to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. And when you look in the, the beginning, God's testimony is this, that Job was perfect and he upright. He's a man that he eschewed or he stayed away from evil. That wasn't his practice. He 
loved the Lord even before there was the law, Mosaic law, even before there was a Levitical and Aaronic priesthood, before there was a temple to be worshipped in, before there was the writing of God's word on scrolls or a Bible that we would say today, before there's any of that, Job knew, believed, and loved the Lord. Matter of fact, chronologically, the book of Job doesn't chronologically in his timeline fit in the middle of the Old Testament. It's one of what they call a book of poetry. That's the reason why it's there with Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Songs of Solomon. But the reality is Job and the storyline time-wise fits somewhere right after the first third of the book of Genesis. So now we have this picture. There's a meeting in heaven. Somebody said there was a meeting in heaven. There was going one going on then about Job and there's one going on right now about you. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. These sons of God, no doubt angelic beings who have assignments from God, have now got to give accountability of how they carried out their assignments. But in that line, walking up to God and giving an account of their assignments, we see somebody else in that line. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan... From where do you come? Now, he already knows, but he's getting to something. Where are you coming from? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro and on the earth and from walking back and forth in it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant? It wasn't Job said to God, but God said to Satan. Because he's about to use Satan to destroy Satan. But he's going to use this villain to bring victory to Job. Stay with me now. It was God who suggested, have you, since you're walking and you're trying to find somebody to put your thorn in, have you considered my servant Job? And here's God's testimony. Ain't nobody like him in the earth. Blameless and upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? He said, there's a reason why Job is so into you. And he tells him, we'll read it. The reason why Job is so into you, and he's, ah, praise the Lord and all this every morning, and got his family gathered around the fireplace, y'all throw your hands up for Jesus too. The reason why is because you've given him a bunch of stuff. You've given him a cushy, comfortable lifestyle. Listen to what he says. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now Satan says this pit bull to God who has a leash on him. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Now something you got to read this slowly. Satan suggests to God. You stretch your hand out and touch his possessions and watch him curse you. The question is, why didn't Satan just go out and touch his possessions? Because he didn't have the authority to do it. He had to suggest to God, not only suggest to him, but he knew that, listen, this is, this is not going to agree with some of our church teaching. 
that it even really essentially wasn't Satan who destroyed Job's property. It was God. Because he said, you touch him. And surely he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, listen to the restrictions as well as the permission. Behold, all that he has is in your power. That's permission. With the exception, with the exception, only do not lay hand on his person. You can touch everything around him, but you can't touch his body. No sickness, no disease. But you can get it all to this boy's mind by taking away everything around him. In case you don't know the story, listen, verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters, Job, they were eating and drinking wine in the eldest or oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were playing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. We read through this so fast and I don't have time to slow it down. But I want you to think about if this was you. In one day, all in one instant, you experience what Job encountered in this chapter. The messenger, excuse me, while, while, excuse me, and the messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And when the Sabians raided them and took them away, indeed, they have killed the servants, all your workers with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you while he was still speaking. Another servant came in and said, the fire of God, whose fire? The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you while he was still speaking. That's what we don't grasp that while he was still speaking, bearing this bad news. Another came and said, your son is one thing to lose your livestock. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness. Who controls the wind? God does. And struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are all dead. And I'm the only one escaped to become your messenger. The text simply says Job arose. Tore his robe, shaved his beard, his head rather, and fell to the ground. And he worshiped God. And he worshiped God. And this is his song of praise. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave. We like that, the giving of the Lord. But whatever you do, don't miss this second part. And the Lord has taken away. But Job still says, blessed be the name of the Lord. The commentary says, in all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Can I go to the second chapter just for a minute? Look at the narrative. Again, there was a day, didn't say how much time has lapsed. He's lost everything, buried his 10 children, seven boys and three girls. I can't imagine that funeral. 
ten caskets laying in front of the church. They're all your children. You've already had funerals for all of your workers, employees. You really don't even have the money to give them a decent burial. Because everything is gone. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves, just as we just read, before the Lord. And Satan came also. He has to give an account before God. He's on assignment, on a leash. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth. And again, the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still holds fast to his integrity. You said he would curse me. He lost everything and he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. I say this is because it is not oftentimes, if the majority of time, your cause that is brought about this calamity, but it's God's purpose. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he'll give for his life. I don't care how poor or how rich he is, but a man to give away all his possessions to live another day. But stretch out your hand, you hear that again? And touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hands. Listen to that. Permission but restriction, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a pot sheared, which was to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. His wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Just curse God and die, whether she meant it for good or for evil, whether she was saying, I'm tired of seeing my baby suffer. Just go ahead, denounce God, get it over with so he can take you out. Or maybe she was thinking he ain't got nothing left but insurance money and I need you to die in order to collect on it. (laughs) Trying to get my nails done. That's my Detroit imagination. But he said, you speak as foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept, listen to this, good from God and shall we not accept Adversity from the same God. In all of this, Job did not sin with his mouth or with his lips. When we look at this narrative, we look at this story, it's not just a story, it's a reality. (laughs) We understand that Satan is on a leash for the purposes of God. But there's something even more to this. Now we can go back to beyond the purpose of God. And now we can go and we can look at, go back to the main text, the central text, in 2 Corinthians 12 and 7 and close out. 2 Corinthians 12 and 7 where we started and Paul says, And least I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, 
to buffet, lest I be exalted above measure. When we look at the text, we understand that Paul had received this deep revelation from God 14 years before he speaks or writes about it. 14 years is a long time. He starts off by saying, whether I was in the body or in the spirit, I didn't know, but I was caught up in some trance, some vision, and brought in the heavenlies before God. And he showed me things that was not permissible to even talk about. In a day then where they got really caught up in visions like in a day now. We love here folks stand in the pulpit talk about and boast about how oh, God just gave me a word. I just had a vision. I just and all this. And as soon as we get it all, oh, I'm going to tell you what, because it makes us sound so spiritual. So into God and God so into us that he gave us the inside scoop. I seen something and know something that y'all don't know in an experience. But Paul said, I received these revelations. And I wasn't quick to jump out there even when I wanted to defend myself among false prophets who were also having revelations. I waited 14 years because I didn't want to be puffed up. And to make sure I didn't get puffed up and arrogant, God threw a thorn in my flesh. So so, so stay with me. Paul says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. The question, church, is who gave Paul the thorn? We spend way too much time trying to figure out what the thorn is. He didn't say what. Listen, this is what I've learned about basic hermeneutics. Wherever the Bible is silent, then you be silent. If you say I speculate, that's one thing. But it's just pure speculation. If the, Stop trying to figure out that which is ambiguous. And stick with what's stated clearly. A thorn was given to me. So the question is, who gave Paul the thorn? We know who delivered the thorn. The text says, a messenger of Satan was sent to bruise me. So the messenger of Satan then, therefore, if he is a messenger of Satan, i.e. a demon, or sickness, or illness, or pain, or beatdowns or shipwreckedness, all of the things that Paul had gone through. The messenger of Satan is delivering a message, but if he's delivering a message, somebody had to write that message. So he says it was a messenger of Satan. So we would normally stop there and say, Satan is the one who was the root cause of pain, of Paul's thorn, his pain. But we still have to remember, that's the reason why I waited until the end to get to this text. Who is absolutely sovereign over Satan? And he cannot do what he just wants to do. He can't just send messages on his own. So maybe we can find the real origin of the message 
the messenger and who really sent this thorn by asking the question, what was the real purpose of this thorn? What was the real purpose of this pain that was sent to the apostle Paul? Here's the answer. It's right there in verse seven. It's stated twice. So to keep me from becoming conceited. So to keep me from becoming conceited. Because I received these great revelations to keep me from becoming conceited. And then he turned around and repeated it at the end of the verse. He said, a messenger of Satan has come to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Don't y'all miss that? He received this deep revelation and God says, whenever I do something great in the life of the believer, we run this strong risk of becoming conceited. I want to bless you with this new job, but I got to give you a thorn to go along with it. Because you are so tempted to make this new job about you and your worth and your effort and what you deserve. I'm going to give you a thorn to remind you of what you really do deserve, but I've withheld giving that to you. So I'm going to give you a piece of what you deserve. But notice what he says. The thorn was given to keep me humble. So I'm going to ask you this question. Do you think the devil would ever give you anything to keep you humble? Do you think the devil would ever give you anything to keep me and you from being prideful? So we know that his origin cannot be for the devil. So what God did, listen to me carefully. He used Satan, who was cast out of heaven because of his pride. To defeat the pride in Paul. So another way of saying it again is he used Satan to defeat Satan. (laughs) Three reasons why God allows the villain Satan to exist. Number one, we just discussed for our own good and for the purposes of God. For our own good, the ultimately is the purposes of God. But then secondly, it ain't going to take long to say this. It's for our joy. Paul responds as a result of his thorn in the flesh. Of course, pleaded with the Lord. We preached all kinds of sermons on that. Remove the thorn, but my grace is sufficient. I'm not wanting to skip over it, but you know that already. But the thorn was given. The thorn was given. The thorn was gifted. And listen, this is what he says because there's, there's two Christian words that express ultimate joy and pleasure in this text. Verse 9, therefore most gladly, most gladly, somebody shout most gladly. In light of this, most gladly, I would rather boast of my infirmities, my weaknesses. And when he says most gladly, it is not just a word of joy, but uh, but the, the, the root word here is hedista, which is where we get our word hedonism. And hedonism means to seek after pleasure. Now, now we think it's a bad word, hedonism, especially as a Christian in this world. But God wants us to enjoy life. He wants life to be, I say it again, he's not a killjoy. He wants us to find pleasure, but the root of that pleasure is in him. 
Not in those things outside of him that eventually become unpleasurable. Sin. So he says, Paul says, therefore, most gladly, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Most gladly I find, listen to this, this deep sense of pleasure in my weaknesses. But not only I look at verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. I take pleasure, i.e. it means I am content with my infirmities and weaknesses. The Greek word is eudokio. It means not only pleasure or, or, or to be content, but it's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 3 and 7 when he says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I find great pleasure and satisfaction. I am so content with my beloved son. So, how does Paul come to that conclusion? Well, he finds not only deep satisfaction, but he finds his greatest joy and his weaknesses and his pain. Nobody likes pain. But how did he come to the conclusion? That's where I find, let's just say it another way. How did he come to the conclusion, the ultimate, to live as Christ and to die is the greatest advantage we'll ever have? It's gain. How did he get to that place? His understanding the sovereignty of God and how he uses this evil villain for his victory. How he has taken Satan to defeat Satan. He has taken sin to defeat sin. And he's taken death to defeat death. And so therefore, when we understand like Paul that God uses pain to bring about great pleasure. God uses adversity for our advantage. God uses what seems like it's misery to cause us to become mature. God uses this thorn to bring about triumph. Listen to one of the greatest issues. This is one of the greatest issues. Listen to me carefully that we're going to be faced with in this life. When God makes your body and your soul and your adverse circumstance a displayed theater Of the revelation of pain. When he puts you on display. For our sake. For our humility. For our meekness. And for Satan's disgrace. And for Christ's glory. How will you respond to it? You become a theater of pain and suffering. How will you respond to it? Will you be like the rest of the world, complaining and murmuring and accusing and challenging God? Or, or maybe you're too embarrassed that, that God would put you out like that and, and, and you gotta you suffer in front of your friends and you don't have what they have and, and all those other kind of stuff. And, and so and as a result of being embarrassed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul said, I'm not ashamed of. Will we be tempted then, embarrassed? Listen, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so will we be so embarrassed that we're tempted to twist or even manipulate the gospel for our own good, for our own pleasure? Or maybe yet, maybe we will go somewhere and find someone to tick or scratch our itching ears by a so-called preacher preaching a so-called gospel which is not the gospel at all 
and find pleasure and joy and satisfaction in that. And not understanding that it was the sovereignty of God all along. Using this villain to bring us great victory. I, I got to close out. <clears throat> so the ultimate answer is not so much just God uses Satan in his existence. His plotting and his planning for his purposes. Secondly, it's not just for our joy. But here's the ultimate reason why he allows Satan to exist to cause disruptions in our life. It's for his glory. It's for his glory. Because if we understand at the root, first, and Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 1.16, and he said it this way, he says, for by him, Christ, all things were created. For by him, all things were created. You know, that also includes Satan. By him, all things were created. That also includes pain. That includes disaster. It also includes calamity. They were created. It doesn't have to make sense to us. What we feel is if I can't make sense of it, then something is wrong with it. No. There's a lot of stuff don't, you know, if you were in a math class, whatever that math class might be, just because you can't figure out this problem, it ain't that the teacher don't know what he or she is doing. And that math is a bust. Whoever came up with this is just stupid. No. Just because you can't figure out the problem and about to fail this test don't mean that math is not logical and that it's not true and that it's not real and that it doesn't have a purpose in life. So because you can't figure out God and you can't figure out God in your circumstances, then we turn to alternatives. But Paul says, for by him and all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Listen, visible and invisible. Now, this is where we get down to the nitty gritty. Whether thrones or dominions is getting deep. Principalities or powers. All things were not only created by him, but through him. And for him or for his glory. And in the end, he's going to be glorified. Every knee is going to bow down and testify that Jesus is Lord. So you say, well, how do I, how do I glorify God in my pain, in my sickness, in my loss, in my tragedies, in my calamities, in my circumstances don't, don't seem favorable? Listen to this and I'm going to close with this thought. It's because God leaves Satan here so you have somebody to choose between. You can either choose to glorify Satan, trusting him, following him, or you can choose to glorify God. He said, I'm going to leave him here so you have a choice. Joshua said it this way, and we skip over it, don't understand the real significance of it oftentimes. In Joshua 24, 15. But if serving the Lord seems, the NIV says, undesirable. Somebody says undesirable. If serving the Lord, it doesn't seem 
desirable. It's undesirable. Then, then Joshua says, you, you're going to have to choose because you're going to serve somebody. Notice what he says. Choose for yourself. In other words, you're going to have to make a decision. I'm going to have to make a decision in everyday life through all of our circumstances. And it's not just in the pain. We normally lose God in the pleasure. We fall on our knees in the pain. It's in the pleasure. It's with the bonus. It's with the promotion. It's with the new boot. That's where we lose God. He gets lost in the sauce. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether it's the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites and whose land you are living. In other words, he said all of those gods, essentially, they're just Satan's, Satan's followers. Ideas about who Satan is and you made a god out of him. So what he's really saying, it ain't but one of two you're going to serve. One or two that seems desirable to serve. You're either going to serve Satan or you're going to serve God. You're going to glorify Satan or you're going to glorify God. He says, but as for me, I've come to this conclusion, I'm going to serve the Lord. Then he says, as for my house, they're going to serve the Lord. Listen, in other words, I think it's not only reasonable. Paul said in Romans 12. You're reasonable. Is God your reasonable service of worship and dedicating your body to? To glorify. Even if that body is decaying, disease written, strained to the point of death. Will you glorify him in your dying? Even that dead body that God created out of the dust brings glory to him. Here's the reason why. Because Christ has already taken death and used death to defeat death to bring glory and honor to himself. So God has taken Satan to defeat Satan. He's taken death to defeat death. He's taken sin to defeat sin and evil. He's taken this villain to bring you great victory. And God will listen to this. You need to know this. He will even take your enemies and the enemies of Christ for your gain. The Bible calls it your footstool. Today we call it an ottoman. The psalmist said it this way in Psalms 110. You need to get this. It's a principle. The Lord said, y'all don't, I don't preach these kind of sermons much. Just remember what the other 99% of the sermon was about. But I have to say this. The text says in Psalms 110, the psalmist said, the Lord said to my Lord. Two words in English for Lord, but two different words in the Hebrew. Yahweh or Jehovah said to Adonai. New Testament is repeated. God the Father said to his son Jesus. (laughs) Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's what God the Father said to his son Jesus. Paul brings it out in Ephesians and he said it this way. God has raised Jesus from the dead. Sat him down 
on his throne, in his throne, on the right hand. Somebody say on his throne. At his right hand. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head of all things. Listen to this. He's made him head of all things. Christ is now at the right hand of the Father with his feet propped up. He said, my Lord said to my Lord, sit down, take your rest until I make your enemies your footstool. Y'all, y'all catching this? So not only is his enemies on the right hand, he's sitting down because he's got peace. His job is done. He's resting. He's resting. Somebody say, I need to rest. He's resting. And he's resting his feet on his enemies. But he also says he's made him the head of the church, which is the body of Christ. So here it is. So if he's sitting on the right hand of the Father, Jesus, he's the head of the church, and every born and again believer is the church, his body, then you and I sit where he sits. Colossians 3, he said it this way, if or since then you have been raised, you past tense, raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. What are you worried about? You're already dead and made alive. You have died already. What else can the adversary do? What else can this villain do? Death can't threaten you. You have already died and your life is now hidden with Christ. He says, set your mind where Christ is and sit yourself down with him. Set your heart where Christ is and sit yourself down with him. In other words, what we need is a throne attitude. If you got a throne attitude, you don't mind what's being thrown at you. Maybe you remember this in my closing statement. Remember when you're catching hell, who the coach is who called the pitch. Life has a way of throwing curveballs at you. But remember who the coach is. Telling the pitcher which ball to throw when you're standing up at the plate. Did y'all get that? <laughs> so the next time the devil want to mess with your mind, say, listen, you might be standing on the pitcher's mound. I know I'm standing in the batter's box, but I didn't already <laughs> seen the signal. I might not understood exactly what the pitch is, but I know you're not in control. My father is. God will use this villain to bring you victory. Let us pray. Father God, we give you thanks. We praise you. We exalt you. We magnify you. Pray, oh Father, that even not only in our pain, but in our pleasure, you are glorified. May the save turn their hearts to you today the lost be found in Christ and accept him as the Lord and Savior. May the wounded, O Father, be made whole. The broken, O Father, the 
bruise restored to life. Pray today, oh Father, when we leave this place, we will be, Lord, lamps that put on full display. Christ Jesus, no matter what the lampshade, the candle stand might look like, rusted, beat it up, beat up, bruised, bent, dented, scratched. It looks worthless. But greater is he that is in us than that he that is in the world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Come on, let's glorify the Lord.